We are overjoyed this morning that you have decided to connect with us as we continue to talk about missions. Today, we move into the theme of motivation for mission. And as we do that, we are delighted because we enter into a season that motivates us to continue moving and pursuing that which God has called us to do, and that is to be agents that are thankful, agents of thanksgiving. So wherever you are in the next couple of weeks, stay tuned throughout our different broadcasts. We've got a lot of activity this uh, time of the year. As you all know, we're in the middle of a sermon series that is teaching us how to be in the world, but not of the world. We're also dealing with uh, the YouReach uh, Thanksgiving uh, celebrations. Next uh, week, as you know, is our YouReach Sabbath. If you are being blessed by anything that they're doing, please consider supporting uh, YouReach. Again, you go on our website, you click on the tab that says Give, and you look at uh, you reach remember media as you as you offer again uh, if you're thankful for what, for what we're doing here we would really really covet both your prayers and your financial support as we talk about what happens on that wonderful morning when finally sunday comes we invite you to pray with us and jesus we love you and because we love you we are thankful we are thankful because in you we see the whole character of God. And as the character of God becomes clear in our minds and is focused in our perspective, we realize that you have loved us with an everlasting love. So for this, we are thankful. We ask that as we enter into the season of Thanksgiving, that we may expand those feelings to others. For we pray in your name. Amen. Joey, how are you? Busy, busy month for you. It's good to have you here. It's good to have you back. Um, busy times for, for you, my dear colleague. Yeah, it's um, really nice to be back. Um, it's always great to get out and travel a little bit and see some of you who are um, joining us from all over the United States. But it's it's nice to be back with you right mm. here in Loma Linda and discussing the lesson. Yeah, we're we're delighted that you're here. We're I wish we could say we're delighted to be here. As you know, a lot of us were not slated to be around. Um <laughs> but uh we're here. Yeah. So, uh we pray again for the situations in the Middle East that have kind of grounded our our travel. Yeah. Uh, and we remember uh people who are obviously suffering as a result of war and violence in whatever part of the world. Yeah. Uh, but if I if not in Israel and in the Holy Land, then I can't think of a better place to be than this one. I know. I know for a lot of our members, some of our staff who were going on this trip, um, they were very, very much looking forward mm. to it. I mean, it's a special place, but um, our prayers go out to the peoples in, um, in Israel and in Palestine. Mm -hmm. um, it's just very, very difficult, the challenges mm. that they're facing. Yeah, you know, I was looking at some pictures from our last trip, well, the last trip that I went to, which is two years ago, um, just kind of trying to to picture myself there again um, when, when the situation again returns to uh, normal, if there is such a thing as normal in, in that part of the world. And uh, just looking at uh, both... The Mount of Olives and the Garden Tomb and then uh, the place uh, where tradition tells us that the Tomb of Christ was in. And both those places just 
uh, connect so well with, with the lesson today that mm -hmm. begins with that famous, famous promise. He is risen. He is risen indeed. And um, Sunday is here. Yeah, that is. Yeah, yeah. There's there's something special about I, I never got it until I went there mm. myself. I, I always wondered why people made these long pilgrimages. Why would they would go all the way over there? I mean, what difference can it could it make? Jesus is not physically there anymore. But there's something special about thinking about this is the spot that mm. Jesus walked. This is the journey that he took on in order to mm. uh, forgive our sins, to deliver us from sin. I, it's There's something special mm. about that. Yeah. Yeah, yeah I think, th and that really pertains to what the lesson is trying to convey yeah. throughout uh, this quarter, and that is, what is our motivation? Mm. What is our ultimate motivation for mission? Uh, mm. The truth of the matter is we can, we can talk about the need to make this world a better place, and that's a laudable goal. We can talk about the need to create communities uh, that are embracing and accepting, and I think that's a very important and really central to our need as human beings. We can also uh, speak about this endemic desire that we have as people uh, to participate and to find uh, interactions and connections relationally with other people. And that's important as well. We talk about healthcare and education and all of the things that we have traditionally done and that we have traditionally associated with mission. But for that empty tomb, it is all for naught because when mm. we think about uh, aid or connection or relationships, the, the truth of the matter is the church has a less than stellar record mm. in those pursuits. But I think what keeps us moving and what keeps us at least believing in this mission, in this goal of sharing a story that is beyond all story is that wherever you believe it happened, um, you, be you do believe that that place is, is indeed empty. Yeah. And for the first followers of Christ, I mean, we're going to look at Luke chapter 24, but it's a story that we've heard so many mm -hmm. times that sometimes we get a little desensitized to it. But just putting myself in the place of the, the, these women as they approach the mm -hmm. tomb, expecting there to be death and finding life, you know, expecting it to be full and finding it empty. Mm -hmm. How incredible that moment must have been. So I'm, I'm looking forward to going, going you, through that passage with you. You know, that's such a powerful statement you make. And it's such a powerful statement because I think it, it presents the ultimate juxtaposition between our efforts and how they pale in comparison with God's grand plan and wow. God's master plan, right? So I, I think that picture that, that you began to outline for us and that you're sketching is just so powerful and so central to the story that Luke is trying to tell. Here you have these women who have woken up early on the first day of the week, and they've woken up early because their mission now is to prepare a body. Yeah. Um, and God says, your mission is to become part of a body. Wow. Um, their wow. mission is to uh, at least curtail the stench of death with spices and uh, the sweet scent, scent of grace and love and mercy and forgiveness is going to be emanating from that empty tomb. So I think it's it's a perfect juxtaposition, mm -hmm. right, that, that Luke is trying to do to paint 
And he's been doing that for 24 chapters. It's the ultimate juxtaposition between that which we try to do and then that which, which God ultimately does for us. Yeah, yeah. I mean, just just the the change that happened in their minds. I, I've been trying to think of if I have ever had an experience like that mm-hmm. where I was expecting one thing. I was expecting discouragement and sadness and mourning, and then all of a sudden it turned to rejoicing. Mm-hmm. I, I I, I couldn't, I couldn't think of a, uh, of a time like that, but I remember a story that John Ortberg tells of when he was a young pastor and he was making some extra money on the side, um, doing, um, services for, for a mortuary. So if somebody came and they didn't have a pastor to officiate, they would pay him to do the, um, the homily or uh, the graveside service for them. And one time he was driving back from um from a funeral that was a little bit farther away and he got tired so the 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 driver said oh you know why don't you just lay in the back you know lay da- lay back there and, and fall asleep because there was no um there was no uh, there was no uh, casket in the back so he laid down and he mm. he fell asleep while he was sleeping he didn't realize that they had pulled up to a gas station to fill up the tank for mm. for the for the um for the car. And it was one of those states where an attendant had Mm. to fill up the gas for you. And so the attendant was filling up the gas and he looked in the back. And apparently this attendant was thinking that it was kind of creepy to have a dead body laying Mm -hmm. out there in, in this hearse. And then all of a sudden John woke up and he sat up and he said that he never saw a man run faster (laughs) in his entire (laughs) life. Because when you expect to see death and instead you see life, you start to get excited. Mm. <laughs> and, um, I mean, I just, just, just that, that change that you talked about, uh, you said it so beautifully that, that they came to prepare a body for death and instead they became a part of the body, right? They, they came expecting death. Instead, they're spreading the news of life, mm-hmm. right? That, that's just such a beautiful thing that happens here. And yet the first time their first witnessing opportunity to people that already follow Jesus, it doesn't work out as mm. they expect, right? Mm. It's a very disappointing experience for them. Right. Um, they are not believed. And how many of us have also experienced that, mm. sharing this great news and not being believed? That's such a great point. And it's also, I think, powerfully stated in in that story because it's, I think, a microcosm of the meta story. Yes, the attendant uh, was petrified, and yes, he was excited, and yes, he flew uh, away from that hearse. But then, I'm assuming 30 minutes later, an hour later, he went back to that which is a routine. Mm -hmm. And I think that's what's so powerful in Luke's account, as Luke starts to weave together the story of the early Christian church. Mm -hmm. Here you have this community of people that not only have been gifted a message, a message that ought to motivate you, but we find that they are quite fickle both in their reception and their propagation of said message. Mm-hmm. So the women um, who represent the first example of that uh, get asked a question that I think uh, one ought to, in any community of faith ought to continue asking of themselves. Why do you seek the living among, why do you seek the living among the dead? Mm. 
and they bow down with, and it takes Jesus again to gently guide them and recenter them and recommit them to their purpose. And then time and time again, whether it's Emmaus or whether it's in the upper room, as the lesson talks about at the day of Pentecost, you find that people's reaction to the reality of the Jesus, the living Jesus, is this initial excitement, this adrenaline burst. But too often in the story, mm. we go back to routine. And so by the time we are introduced uh, to this early Christian community in Acts chapter 2, we find them not preaching powerfully along the highways and byways of Judea. We find them huddled together, hiding in the upper room. And I think that to maintain the energy um, for mission, to maintain that initial exuberance in the midst of the movement, I think is a, is a real, real task, both to the early church and obviously to us today. Yeah. What do you think makes it so challenging to keep that initial enthusiasm, to keep that initial um, passion or excitement for what we've heard? Because a dead man coming to life I don't know if there's anything mm. anything that would shock me, anything that would mm. inspire me more than that, mm. right? So why is it difficult to keep that motivation um, fresh? I think you, you said it at, at, at the outset, right? How many times have we read the story and become desensitized mm. to it because it breathes this air of familiarity? Yeah. I think that is part and parcel of a walk with Christ. In the Christian life, mm. uh, the ordinary and the extraordinary are majestically woven together. And so, yes, we might have not seen a dead man literally get up and walk, but we've seen dead marriages mm. uh, come back from the brink. We've seen people uh, that are walking dead in addiction and despair come back and have meaningful lives. We've, we see, and I think throughout uh, our years in ministry and our years as part of the body of Christ, we've seen mirac the miraculous thing happen yeah. so often that perhaps we've become desensitized to it. Mm. And it is that reality that I think forces us or pushes us, this sense of desensitization pushes us back into that which is most comfortable for us. Mm. And there is a lot of comfort in, in the routine, in the known, in the easily predictable. Mm. And so I think for, for, the, for the disciples, it is that routine. It is, it is to go back to that place that is known uh, and that is safe and where you can predict the results. It's great that Jesus has resurrected. Mm -hmm. Let's all celebrate it together as we huddle in this room. I think uh, the vulnerability and the risk that it takes then to breathe that message out into a wider world that might reject you, and if we take Jesus's words um, at face value, that will reject you. Yeah. Um, that's, that's a frightening proposition. And so perhaps it's the desensitization uh, combined with the comfort that routine brings mm. and that the known uh, provides that really causes us to to act in very similar ways, doesn't it? Yeah. I mean, it does it definitely points 
towards this tendency that humans have of getting in a rut, mm. right? Like we carve out these patterns of behaviors and even if something shocks us out of mm -hmm. them initially, it's very easy to fall back into those ruts, right? And the challenge is to continue to carve new ruts, mm. right? In new behaviors or new patterns of behaviors that, that keep us out of the old mm -hmm. ones. You don't stay out of the old ones by trying to avoid the old ones. You stay out of the old ones by carving mm -hmm. new ones. And it seems like that process is difficult mm -hmm. and needs to be intentional. And that's as part of what it, they, they seem to be talking about with a preparation of, of mission is that these, these followers of Christ, it seems like for part of the reason why God wants them to go and wait for the Holy Spirit is so that the Holy Spirit can prepare them, right? And it, it talks about the preparation that is needed. They did a logistical preparation, right, where they had 11 apostles and so they picked uh 12th apostle mm -hmm. and then also a spiritual preparation that happened for mission where they waited for the holy spirit mm -hmm. to come upon them and that led to this powerful preaching of 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 the gospel where thousands of people came and and, and followed christ and so um what are we doing in the it it sort of points to the importance of what we do in in the in between times when the action isn't exciting, what are we doing in those times that prepare us to be missional in all times? Yeah, I think that's a great point. And as, as I was reading that and just pondering that, my mind went back to Jesus's early ministry. Mm -hmm. um, and I read it again uh, this week for my devotional, Luke chapter 5. Mm -hmm. Luke chapter 5 presents a flurry of activity. First, you have the calling of the first disciples, uh, followed by uh, this rapid, rapid emergence of healing, healing, healing mir mir miracles, which then creates this effervescence in the countryside where people are flocking to Jesus. Mm -hmm. And Luke is very sly in just leaving this line uh, in the text for us to easily miss if we're not paying attention. He says, people came to him to hear the message and be healed. Mm -hmm. And then he, he moves on. But before he moves on, so there's a healing and then he heals a, a leper in advanced stage of leprosy. And right in the middle of that, he interjects this, this line, followed by, but Jesus would often retreat into mm. the wilderness to pray. Yes. And that that little line, if if you're not if you're if you're caught up in the effervescence, you're going to miss that. You're going to miss that the rhythm of mission is not just about the external work. It's not just about the three thousand people that you're going to baptize. Uh, that doesn't occur with the internal work without the internal work. And I think that's how you craft and you create new patterns. It's very hard to attempt or to try and sell a bill of goods where we're saying we want you to live like Jesus. This is the message of Jesus without intentionally adopt, adopting the lifestyle practices of Jesus. Mm -hmm. And so I think that's that's one of the things uh, where, again, you see you see grace by happenstance, which often happens in the Gospels. The reason why they're up there is they're, they're afraid, they, they, are, they are afraid of what this new message might bring. And yet, 
the spirit will use even that state of dubiousness mm -hmm. to do to prepare them to do the internal work that is necessary. Um, and often I think we we fall into the temptation of, like you said, getting caught up in the visible uh, without actually realizing that there's a lot of preparation that happens uh, behind the scenes, whether that be in your in the way you curate your individual life or in the way your community talks about how they are to go out. Yeah. I mean, Jim Collins in Good to Great, he talks about this in a macro level with companies, how a lot of people look at successful companies mm -hmm. that come out of nowhere and they think, oh, their success was they made one decision and all of a sudden they mm -hmm. blew up in health. But what he said, what he's found in studying these companies is that there is a long process of incremental growth mm -hmm. that get to them a place where they are able to explode mm -hmm. um, and be in, be recognized as a great company. But if you looked at the whole span, mm -hmm. that one choice was just the next step mm -hmm. in their progression, mm -hmm. right? And too many times we get so enamored with that last step that we don't realize it actually takes all these mm. other steps beforehand, mm. This these little tiny decisions that we make. And that's true with companies. It's true with humans. It's true with our walk with Jesus, that it's not one and done. It is that we are making those faithful, as was his practice, right? Like you said with Jesus, we're taking those faithful steps of spending time with God, spending time with Jesus, that eventually leads to this these opportunities to be missional mm -hmm. and prepares us for those opportunities when God puts us into a place where we can share about him, share yeah. his love with other people, yeah. and that we are prepared to do that. Yeah, and then the tilt happens uh, when the Spirit intercedes. And I think yeah. that's that's the discernment. Um, and I've, I've really, the more I read... Uh, the Gospels, particularly Luke's Gospel, the more I realize that the reason why Jesus is spending time in quiet solitude is, is because you can discern better the will of the Spirit in the solitude. Yes. And so I, I find that a lot of times, if, if you're a type A personality, which you and I know nothing about, um, the the temptation isn't just uh, to make the plan or the or the decisions that will lead you uh, to the outcome that you desire. Sometimes the problem isn't that you're making the plans; is that you uh, are waiting for the plan to be great, that you get stuck. Mm -hmm. um, you get stuck in planning paralysis, where uh, you're always trying to get it perfect until you move. And so um, what I've kind of written in, in, in my, my heart, my mind as my mantra is at some point it needs to be good enough to move on. Mm -hmm. And I think that's, that's the part, mm -hmm. that preparation when you're, when you're working on stuff to be good enough to move on, yeah. um, that's the part where you say, okay, I'm going to, now it's time for discernment and it's time for the spirit to take over. Because after all, Let's face it, this isn't our story. This isn't, this isn't our message. This is a message that is breathed in and through and by the Spirit. Wow, that's a great point. That's a great reminder that preparation isn't preparing to be perfect, mm -hmm. right? We're not waiting until everything, all the stars align mm -hmm. for us to be able to step in. Often, 
almost always God calls us <laughs> into spaces where we don't feel fully prepared, right. right? And so we have, the most important thing is the preparation is listening and being mm -hmm. able to, like you said, discern the Holy Spirit mm -hmm. to hear how he's moving. And we've talked about this before, partnering with him mm -hmm. in the spaces where he's already working. And that's part of the reason why we don't have to be perfect because it's not about us. Correct. Right. It's about what the what the Holy Spirit, what God is already doing in that space. And we get to be a part of a little piece of that um, and join him in in that. It reminds me of, of the story. And I don't know if it's true or not about a concert pianist who was performing. And somehow a little kid got onto the stage and started playing chopsticks on the piano. And the unbeknownst to her, the concert pianist came and started to play a masterpiece around her chopsticks. Right. And at the end, people applauded. They were they were they were so amazed. It took a lot of bravery for that little girl to start playing chopsticks on a concert piano in front of thousands of people. But really, the performance was not about mm -hmm. her. It was about the master. And that's that is what God seems to be trying to teach us is that mm -hmm. the, the the mission that we accomplish in this world is in partnership with a master. So not everything has to mm -hmm. be perfect. I love that. Not everything has to be perfect. Mm. And because not everything has to be perfect, our reaction to those moments where the Spirit opens up the opportunity for us to be conduits for mission, mm. we don't have to be perfect in those moments. Mm. And that's often, I think, one of one of the biggest black marks that I that I struggle with. And that is, I think to myself, could I have done better in this particular situation? And then the story of how mission goes into the world is so refreshing because no one reacts in the story in the way you think they ought to react. Yeah. The women fall down in their feet because they're looking for uh, the living among the dead. Peter and the disciples hear the message of Jesus resurrected. And instead of going out and shouting, for joy, they both run to the tomb. There's nobody in the tomb anymore. The t that's the whole point of the story, right? The tomb has no power. Um, and then you have, and the lesson didn't talk about what perhaps is my favorite story in the whole Gospel of Luke, which is on the road to Emmaus. You have these two disciples that are just downtrodden, but there's something that is a, their own grief, their own preoccupation with grief uh, keeps them from recognizing who Jesus is. Mm. Um, and so it is only until Jesus invites them to sit at a table mm. um, that, that kind of the veil of grief is lifted. And then you're going to have our transition into Acts where obviously the people are, they're just there uh, huddled. Yeah. And so I think one of the things that that I uh, hope we get to uh, a place we get to and that you get to as as viewers is that you're not that hard on yourself and you don't bemoan the missed opportunities because when it comes to conveying the message of the risen savior we almost never get it right. Yeah. And that's what I love about this story is that Jesus does. I mean, and the angels and they 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 sort of chastise people for their unbelief. Mm -hmm. And yet they continue to offer evidence, right? Mm -hmm. Jesus 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 tells them 
um, he, he chastises for them n- not believing, but then he offers his mm-hmm. hands for them to touch, right? And then he chastises, and then he offers to eat food mm-hmm. so that they believe he's not a ghost, right? Like he does these things. He continues to offer evidence despite their unbelief. And so it just shows me throughout this, like Jesus understands this is a journey for mm-hmm. us and he's willing to walk it with us. It's not like he's just going to offer it once. And if you don't believe you're completely lost. God does have the grace to continue to reach out. It's his desire to continue to reach out to us. And that gives me a lot of hope in that, like you said, we don't have to have it perfect because God is willing to work with us. And that's, I think, what should be our greatest motivator. Uh, People often ask, well, what if, I I mean, I don't know what to say, or uh, even better, I'm living in a season of my life in which I can't hear the voice of God. Mm. I cannot connect meaningfully to God. One of our colleagues this this week sent me, I think, a beautiful idea that uh, that she typed out. She said, "To be wrestling with God means that you are still in God's hands," and I think mm. that is so powerful because wow. it's true. Even in these seasons where it seems like we are not living up to the call of going into all the world and preach this gospel um, in Jerusalem and Samaria and to the end of the world, in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the end of the world, God says, I can use you. Mm. Um, You don't have to have perfect faith. You just have to have presence. You have to be here. Mm. And sometimes presence and being here is enough. Yeah. I love that imagery that when we're wrestling with God, we are still in his arms. That's that's so powerful because we often think of that that doubt that comes with wrestling with God mm. as walking away from mm-hmm. him. But the fact that we're still engaged in that conversation shows that he ha- we have not given up on him and he has not given mm. on, up on us. Yeah. What what I also think is is important. So there's that's the orientation, and we've talked a little bit about our orientation mm-hmm. uh, and how our orientation should motivate us to mission. You've talked about this idea of not being perfect, of uh, just going for it sometimes, but also planning and and doing some of the logistical work. We've talked about applying ourselves to the difficult art of curating a life that mirrors Jesus's lifestyle. And that also is important. Mm. But I think one of one of the the parts that is often overlooked is that there is or there has to be a time for thoughtful study of scripture. Mm-hmm. That without that, uh, it doesn't matter how charismatic or how well-intentioned or how much preparation we've done, yes. the message is going to be confusing. Um, and you find this this imagery uh, being replicated throughout the story, right? Uh, the angel will say, "Don't you remember?" Mm-hmm. Um, and then you'll have uh, you'll have on the road of Emmaus, you'll mm-hmm. have Jesus engaging in probably the longest Bible study in the New Testament, mm-hmm. and then. Uh, you have uh, right before his ascension, at least in in Luke's gospel, Jesus occupying the mount, the minds of the disciples. It says that uh, verse forty five, uh, he opened their minds so that they could understood, uh, so that they could understand the scripture. 
Uh, this is what is written. The Messiah will raise, will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day. And mm -hmm. repentance for the forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name in all nations beginning in Jerusalem. Mm -hmm. And so in these three uh, vignettes, what you have ultimately is kind of scripture itself, the story of scripture uh, playing a, a key role in in our creating and crafting of the message that is the mission. Oh, I love how you brought us back to that because that was one of my favorite parts of the lesson, how it talked about how even though they had Jesus right mm -hmm. there, right? And they got to see a, a person who was dead come to life mm -hmm. and touch him. And he, Jesus didn't leave it there. Mm -hmm. Like he brought them still back to scripture and said, see how this fulfills right. all that was already shown in scripture. He led them back to the word of God. And that just shows me how central the word of God was to Jesus, right? I mean, he is the word. He is the word of God. And yet he was there bringing them back to scripture, the written word, so that they can understand not only how it pointed to him, but also pointed to the future and mm -hmm. the work that they would be doing. Mm -hmm. Right, so he brought them back to that, and we see that pattern even in the book of Acts, right? In Acts chapter two, where they not only these people have this amazing conversion experience. Peter does another Bible study mm -hmm. there in Acts, where he leads them through Scripture and then tells them about Jesus, and then and then they they are converted, they're baptized, and then it tells us in Acts chapter two, verse forty-two, that they devoted themselves mm -hmm. to the apostles' really? teaching. And to the fellowship. And I love how in the lesson it talked about how fellowship is not just is not just eating together, mm -hmm. it's not just having fun together, although that that is part of it. It is also the connections in community that help model faith, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. And so you learn the ideas of scripture, but you also practice it in mm -hmm. community together. And so scripture becomes a living thing in their lives, mm -hmm. right? And this is where discipleship um, cross-sections with this idea of, of evangelism or preaching of the good news, right? That they're not two separate things. They're part and parcel of the same thing. That this, this journey that begins with the sharing of the good news continues when that good news becomes embodied in the people mm. themselves. And I love that journey that, that scripture is not just something that we read and learn, it points to real things that are happening in real lives and ultimately what happens within us mm. when we follow Jesus. And that nuance, I think, is a nuance that I want us to linger on just for, for a few moments here because it's an important one. So you don't read scripture in order to, to get the answers to the existential problem that faces us, mm. the answers to the existential problems that face us is a per it's a person it's mm -hmm. an it's the embodiment of of scripture you also don't read scripture to create a systematized uh, set of beliefs that mm -hmm. will that will prove that somehow your faith system is superior or closer to the quote unquote truth mm -hmm. the reason why you read scripture is because scripture ultimately is the fuel for mission. Mm -hmm. And so it's not about the intellectual assent to a set of beliefs. Mm -hmm. And I think that nuance needs to be clear because too often we go to scripture and 
we have our, our favorite text memorized and handy to point to when it comes to sharing why the, the set of uh, beliefs that we are selling is superior to any other on the market. Mm. That's not the point of Scripture. Mm. Uh, the point of Scripture is the fuel for mission. And I love the fact that Luke highlights that, um, which is why I wish I wish this would this story that kind of gets overlooked in in our study of the lesson this week would have would have been just talked about a little bit. I think I'm talking, of course, of Luke chapter twenty four, verse thirty two. Hmm. So here, the, here these these two disciples have just encountered Jesus. Hmm. They've seen they've seen him, and Jesus has now disappeared, hmm. and. Isn't it fascinating what Luke writes? Verse 32, he says, They, speaking of the two disciples, asked each other, Were not our hearts burning within us while he talked with us on the road and opened scripture to us? Mm. And you know the Hebraic understanding of the heart. It's kind of this gut level, emotive re reaction, where both the intellect, and the feelings merge beautifully to make, to give you and to prescribe what your mission, what your destiny is, what is God's call for your life. And I wonder if we um, approach scripture in a different way, particularly as it pertains to our preparation for mission. Mm -hmm. And it, where it's not, we have to unlock the mystery of the book, but rather, what is Scripture doing in a real sense to us internally? And um, I love, again, uh, Eugene Peterson's uh, image uh, that, he, that he describes when he talks about what Scripture should do in his wonderfully apt and aptly entitled book, Eat This Book. And taking from, from that text in Revelation, that's what he says. He says, you consume it till it becomes part of you. Mm. And, that, and that consuming action transforms you. And it's very similar to this language that Luke utilizes in, um, verse, in chapter 24, verse 32, where it inflames, it burns your, something happens internally that, gen that then makes the proclamation of the message second nature. Mm -hmm. And the message that is going to be proclaimed isn't one of triumphalism. Um, the message that is going to be proclaimed is, uh, again, as Luke states, repentance and forgiveness of sins that will be preached in his name to all nations. That's the message. No triumphalism, no sectarianism, no cultism, repentance and forgiveness of sins in his name. Yeah. Wow. That's that's so powerful. That's so good. I love this idea that it's that we're consuming the book and it creates this fire within mm -hmm. us that then spreads to mm -hmm. others like this is not just an intellectual ascent mm -hmm. of something happening. It is changing the way we live. Mm -hmm. it, it is being embodied in who we are. Mm -hmm. And that means that it it is the thing that defines both the motivate both the method and the motivation behind mm -hmm. our mission, which is that we are we're sent out not to prove other people wrong. Mm -hmm. We are sent out to spread this message 
repent because there's forgiveness mm-hmm. available to all of us. And I love that. I love that. And I think then uh, the question, and I've I've had this question. Uh, we were blessed this week, as as you remember, earlier on this week we had a a meeting uh, with with the pastors in our in our area, mm-hmm. and just a wonderful presentation. Um, I did have one issue, and you know it wouldn't be a wonderful presentation if it's not challenging you. Um, and the presentation, uh, at least the, the part that I I was wondering, and I've been just trying to figure this out over the past couple of days. How do you present, how do you enact mission to a world for whom scripture is no longer an authoritative uh, figure? Uh, it's, it's great literature, um, but it's not authoritative in the, in the same way that it was authoritative in the 19th century. And that's, that's a challenge. Um, the one of the possibilities that was offered was that you start with the language and the things that uh, people are already comfortable with mm-hmm. with that archive of communal knowledge that we that we now possess and that you bridge you kind of uh, retro uh, build a bridge from that which we know to the world of scripture mm-hmm. To them, prove scripture. Yeah. I don't know if I like that uh, that possibility because I think it it always forces us then to try to accommodate scripture mm. um, to a world that is in constant evolution, um, where if if you're contingent on this external factor first, I I, I don't know what we do with the centrality of of scripture that Protestants. Um, have have considered important for for 500 years. So I've been struggling with that. And I think today is Sabbath. I might change because this is a, an idea of in its infancy. So it might change by next week. But I think rather than do that, rather than try to build a world um, from what we know in our current culture to the to the book, rather than trying to build that bridge uh, I think it's probably uh, it probably maintains scripture at it at the center uh, and at the central point of our uh, missiology. If we build a book a bridge from the story of scripture to the stories that people are inhabiting, not the other way around. And so I think that's gonna that's gonna take a subtle shift in how we look at scripture. Because often we've looked at scripture as this authoritative document that has information that is going to help us live our life better. Mm-hmm. Uh, we, we, some, some people can look at it like as an ethical uh, text that can codify behavior. Mm-hmm. But really, as Adventists, we should be very comfortable with scripture as a story. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's a story that's, that transcends uh, culture and age, and even gender. Um, It's the ultimate story. It's the story of being lost and coming back home. It's the story of being in trouble and uh, getting rescued. Mm -hmm. It's the story of losing and then regaining. Mm -hmm. And I think that those themes which are present in Scripture 
are themes that we as humans, some for some strange reason, resonate with. Mm -hmm. And so I'm wondering if it wouldn't be a better thing that uh, when we come, that we start with scripture and we say we know that this might not be an authoritative document for you as far as the information that it contains, mm -hmm. but I've got good news for you. That's never what it's supposed to be. Mm -hmm. It's supposed to be a story which where and which uh, with which you can identify. Wow, wow, and that story is not just somebody else's story, it becomes our story. It's your story. Yeah. Wow. Because the themes in that story, regardless if you live today or a or hundred years from now or 500 years in the past, the themes in that story are themes that you are struggling with already. Mm -hmm. um, so I, I don't know, Joey, I think that's what Bible study really is. It, mm -hmm. it's, it's the art of looking at the story and then being able to place both yourself and those whom you whom with you are studying in that story so that it's not about uh, the two disciples on the road to Emmaus. It's about me in a world that is full of chaos and hate and disparaging where dark has set in and the Christian church has a message but the Christian church, that message has been veiled by all of the brutality that has been the 20th century. Mm -hmm. And then we're able to see, don't you see yourself in that story? We are those blind uh, disciples that have been consumed by grief and the brutality of the environment around us. Uh, but what would happen? What would happen if we go back to saying, repentance and forgiveness is available to one and all. Um, that's the story. That's, I think, what Bible study ought to do. And I think it does do something intellectually to you because it, it really begins to put you in touch with, the care, with who God truly is. Yeah. But it also does something emotive in you. Yeah, yeah. It connects. It resonates with something inside mm. of us. It burns our mm. hearts deep inside. Yes. Yeah, that's that's such a powerful way of looking at it because then when we're telling the story of Jesus, it's not just the story of Jesus, it's the story, our story as connected to Jesus. Mm -hmm. And so our goal should not be so much, like you said, to prove certain tenets of belief or prove someone right or wrong, mm -hmm. but ask ourselves, how is the Holy Spirit connecting what is happening mm -hmm. in scripture to what is happening in my friend's mm -hmm. life? And how do I help them see that connection? Mm. That's what Bible study is. Mm. And that's what it is to introduce someone to the story of God. And as I was thinking about it yesterday, um, I think there is a, there's a happy coincidence that arises when you look at Bibles, at the study of Scripture in that way, the study of Scripture as motivating your mission. When you look at scripture as a text that from which you are to mine truths, then the truths that you mine become your property mm. in very much the same way that, uh, you know, the 19th century when people would come east and mine um, a mountain or, or a riverbed, mm. whatever they extracted from uh, that place became very much their property. Yeah. When you look at it as... Uh, at scripture as this collective story uh, that that is 
the human condition, then who owns that story? And I, I, as I was thinking, I realized, well, everybody who's human owns the story. And so whatever I extract from it is going to be mine in the sense that I identify with it. But it's, it also is going to be yours in the sense that you identify with it. Mm -hmm. And the beauty is that we don't need to identify with the same things. Mm -hmm. um, scripture, so it, it becomes our our view and our approach to scripture, I think, becomes more, much more democratic in the sense yeah. that we don't hold uh, the ultimate control over, and we are we can't we are not the arbiters on what is right and what is wrong, on yeah. what is true and what is not. Yeah, it's less about control, mm. more about connection. Mm. Yeah. That's a good way to put it. I like that. Less about control, more about connection. Yeah. Well, thank you, Miguel. This has been. Enlightening, as always, journeying through scripture with you and discovering the motive and the preparation for mission, how scripture plays that pivotal role of, of driving both our motivation and prepares us for mission. Well, it's, it's good to have you back. Good to have you back from, from the mothership. And we're praying for you as you, as you continue leading us through this uh, through the sermon series about how to be in the world, but not part of the world. Won't mm. you pray for us? Yes. Our good and gracious God, we, we invite you, as always, to step into our lives with your words, with your scripture, to inspire us, to motivate us, to drive us, to change us, and to prepare us to be missional, to embody your words in our everyday lives so that when we interact with others, that we can also connect them to your words of scripture and your words of life. This is our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. So perhaps today God will grant you the courage to let control go in order to foster connection. Until next week, God bless you.